Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. Beatty, thank you very much for joining us today. How significant is the supply chain stress now compared to what it might have been two or three months ago? Very significant. Uh, what we've seen is is pressure right across the board around the world on supply chains, but Omicron has added to that pressure. Um, the trucking uh, industry did a did a survey uh, along with Statistics Canada. They published the results uh, a couple of weeks ago, which found that in December of last year, there was a record in terms of the uh, lack of truck drivers that we had in Canada. This was before these new restrictions went into place. And as a result, what we're faced with is enormous pressures on the supply chain. We've done quite a number of interviews with truckers, with trucking firm owners, with the Trucking Alliance. And the message is consistently the same. The stress on our, just our, uh, our economic way of life in this country is increasing dramatically. Could I get you to just give me your sense of the impact of the cross-border trucking vaccination mandates, both Canada and the United States, and particularly at this time in the middle of January? It, the real issue is, the greatest issue is one of timing. Nobody quarrels with the, with, with the belief that truckers, like everybody else, should be vaccinated. Of course they should. But the question is, how do we manage this and how do we do it in a way that, that makes sense and doesn't create more problems than, uh, than it solves? It, it, if, if you go back two years, Roy, to the beginning of this, we exempted truckers, cross-border truckers, at the time that we were imposing restrictions on everybody else in terms of travel and what they could do, we asked these people to risk their lives to ensure that we would have the flow of medical supplies, of food, and other critical supplies that we needed in Canada. And these folks were heroes. Now, at the height of Omicron, the government is targeting them and saying, we're going to sideline several thousand. It could be twelve to 15,000 Canadian truckers and a large number of American truckers uh, at a time when, when our supply chains are in very serious troubles. What does this mean? It means for business, difficulty in terms of getting the inputs that we need that allow us, our manufacturers, for example, to stay open, or our retailers to be able to stock their shelves. It means uh, challenges in terms of moving goods, finished goods that we have in Canada that we want to uh, ship south. Um, and for the point of view of, of Canadian families, it means shortages and higher prices. From your perspective and the perspective of the Chamber, what would have been the more sensible way to approach this entire issue of vaccination for truck drivers? Again, in the middle of January, how would we have better, could we have better handled this? Well, first of all, I've seen no data that indicates that, that truck drivers are a particular threat in terms of the spread of Omicron. And you'll note that the government is, is targeting cross-border truck, truckers. Uh, they can, you can still be unvaccinated and travel across the country. There's nothing that indicates that cross-border truckers pose a, a particular threat. And if you're looking at, uh, at occupations, trucking is a relatively solitary profession. You're sitting by yourself uh, in a cab uh, for most of the day, and, and increasingly it's, it's a touchless operation. Um, I've seen no evidence produced by the government that there's any particular threat that, that, is, that is grown here posed by truckers. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt. 
if they had identified that, that somehow truckers were the ones who were creating the spread of Omicron, they could have worked with the provinces and with the industry months ago to set up special vaccination clinics, for example, at truck stops across the country or near border crossings. Um, instead of doing that, what they did was to simply impose this new mandate, which is going to sideline 12 to 15,000 more truckers on the Canadian side and several thousand more on the American side. Yeah, I spoke with three truckers last weekend. We had a panel of uh, owner-operators, independent truckers on the program, none of them vaccinated. All three of them are out of the industry now. They were still driving the Friday before last Saturday, if that makes sense, as far as the calendar is concerned. So they were still driving the day before the edict or the, the mandate came into effect. Six days later, they're all out of the industry. And I'm sure that will repeat itself time and again. Roy, it's, it's even worse than that. Uh, what you had last week was the just absolute chaos with the government putting out a notice saying um, that that truckers were going to be exempt, cross-border truckers. They left it out there for 16 hours. As a result, then, uh, the industry said, well, this is great. The government has actually listened, and we can go ahead. And they sent unvaccinated truckers south, either to pick up loads or carrying loads. Yeah. Then, 16 hours later, the government reversed its position, and the industry approached the government and said, well, what about these people who are in the United States today? Um, at least you, will you grandfather them and allow them in without any difficulty when they come back? And the answer was no. Yeah. These people had done nothing wrong. They were following what the government said was, was the policy. And instead, these folks are going to be taken out for two weeks of quarantine where they won't be able to work. It's plain unfair. One of our panelists was in exactly that position. He left on the Wednesday after the announcement by the CBSA that the mandate was off. And by the time he was speaking with us on the air on Saturday, he was in the United States unvaccinated, not sure whether a shipper in the U.S. would give him a load for Canada. So it's, it's well, just... And he, he, he had done nothing wrong. He'd done nothing wrong. Absolutely he had, he not. followed the advice of the government. Yeah. And, and the government said, well, we're going to force you to pay a price for following our, our advice. I may be out a little bit with my numbers here, but I believe between 60 and 70% of Canada's half-trillion-dollar trade with the United States moves by truck, does it not? So what is the impact ultimately in the greater sense uh, to our to our economy, and what's the impact to your members, of the, of the chamber members? Potentially very significant, uh, and, and it'll be felt in, in many different ways. Uh, the, first of all, the... the trucking industry itself will try to scramble to minimize the impact. So we'll try to move unvaccinated people into doing domestic trucking as opposed to cross-border trucking, the extent to which they can, that they can do that. But then they're going to have to triage. And um, they'll obviously focus first on what are, who are my largest customers? We've got to make sure that we continue to support them. Well, who are the ones who are likely going to, going to be most hit? It, it's going to be ones who are small customers or regular customers, ones in rural and remote areas, hard to serve locations, ones that are labor intensive, such as people shipping, uh, uh, shipping livestock, for example. So small businesses will be particularly hit, people in rural, remote, uh, remote areas. And uh, we'll see the impact on, on fresh produce. Uh, we'll see the impact on uh, other essential goods that we need to get from, from the United States. For manufacturers, 
they'll have two problems. The first is getting the inputs that they need to be able to continue their production. So some of them may be forced to, to reduce production or to lay people off. And uh, also the difficulty in terms of moving their goods down south across the Canada-U.S. border. So the impact is significant. The government uh, is going to make the argument that the issue is moot because the uh, U.S. government is going to have a similar prohibition in terms of, of people crossing. But the impact on the U.S. economy is way lower than it is on the on the Canadian economy. And the impact on the U.S. consumer is way lower. We need to get the vegetables, fresh fruit, other produce in winter. It comes south. It, it comes north. It doesn't go south. And that's a significant impact on Canada. Uh, secondly, the share of our country's GDP dependent upon cross-border trade is way lower for the U.S. than it is for Canada. So the impact on Canada is going to be significantly higher. Let's get at the story that I've wanted you to hear, and um, you're hearing it first here. Exclusive first-person story from a Canadian doctor I know well. He's been on this program, infectious diseases specialist, and what he personally encountered after returning to Canada after testing positive for COVID-Omicron in the United States in recent days. What he did about it and what he encountered and whom he contacted, it is quite the story. Dr. Neil Rao joins us, infectious diseases specialist, Halton Region, Ontario, also faculty member at the University of Toronto School of Medicine. Dr. Rao, thank you for taking the time. You were in sharing the story. You were in the U.S. on a needed family visit, tested positive 72 hours before your return to Canada. What happened? Well, first of all, getting that test wasn't easy. I was in California visiting my parents, and <clears throat> there were lineups outside, and California winter weather, meaning it's like 12 Celsius, and people were cold. But got the test back pretty quickly, and I had fulfilled the requirements of the Canadian government, having a test available within 72 hours of being positive. My son was with me. It turns out he's negative. Um, and, in fact, I'd even tested positive a couple of days before because I had the sniffles, but it took so long to get that one back. I knew I had been positive for five days, so I was able to fly within the U.S. as per CDC guidelines. And I flew back to Detroit, where I had uh, driven to. So I was actually hearing tons of stories about people uh, flying to the U.S. with a negative antigen test, which doesn't pick up as much virus as the uh, PCR does. And then they get down to the U.S. and they test positive by PCR and they get trapped. And then they have to get home and they can't fly back to Canada. So I flew back to Detroit five days after I'd been positive. Halfway got in the car at the airport, drove to the Windsor Tunnel. And this is where things started to go south. Well, first of all, I'd done the Arrive Can app as per the requirements, but they don't count the test in the U.S. They only count the test after you get back. So the clock starts resetting, not even the day you get back to the U.S., it's the day after they test you by Switch Health once you're here. So I was now six days into my, quote, illness, which was already resolved, before I could get a test to get the clock counting. And the other thing that happens is if you come back from the U.S., you have to isolate for 10 days from when you test positive in Canada, not five days as it would be if you had tested positive in Ontario. And then the other thing that happened is I had multiple different messages. So the guy at the border said you have 10 days to isolate from when you arrive. I pleaded with him that should we go back to like when I tested positive. No, 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 no. The website says something else. Then the website also says that if you come back, it's 10 days from when you arrive. Then I'm told it's 10 days from when I test positive here. 
And then I get a Toronto Public Health text message when I test positive here, of course I did, saying it's only five days. So I had four different messages as to what to do. And I, I, you know, I could ideally just shop for the one that I want because nobody was following me afterwards after for many days. Uh, but the problem is it's such a confusing message. And it's also confused because you have one jurisdiction, the federal one, trumping the provincial one. And the feds are anxious about reducing their isolation to five days, even once people end up in a jurisdiction where they have decided to do that. So they're not even harmonized. And so that slowly what happens, you, you can end up being uh, positive and dealing with it for 15 or 16 days. And then the worst thing they did is they even told my son he should isolate for 14 days because he'd been exposed to me. And in fact, that was an error. But that was another incorrect message that I got. Uh, you know, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to follow here, and and you're an inf- infectious diseases doctor, and you know this stuff. For for me, it's and I'm a broadcaster and a journalist, and I read, follow, and talk to people about the procedures that are in place. But it's it's so confusing. So y- you could, in fact, be okay. You test positive in in the in the U- U.S. You go through their particular time period where you have to isolate. And then you return to Canada. Tell me if I'm right about this. And you and and you have to quarantine again, based yeah. on when you arrive here. Right. So they're ignoring the positive test from the U.S. as if I would be interested in faking a positive. Like I could see people want to fake a negative, but no one's going to. No one's going to fake a positive. But you remember where PCR was developed? It was by Corey Mullis in the Los Altos Hills of California. Like I think they've got PCR down in the U.S. So I think we can actually believe a u.s test result and we should actually honor when people test positive abroad that the clock starts ticking from they're already positive people spent hundreds of dollars to be tested in many cases it was lucky for me while i was in california it was a freebie but there are a lot of people paying a fortune to be tested and they, they, they have to do it under threat of a huge sanction or a fine if they don't do it and then we don't even honor it when they turn positive we start the clock again it's like a like a spanking it's, it's that French verb MFD, you know, what Macron was using to really annoy or, quote, piss off people. It's a way of annoying people for having traveled. That's what yeah. this is. Yeah, and you're an, you're an essential worker. Yeah, that doesn't matter. I did, that didn't work at all. I, even, I tried those. That doesn't matter? No, no, no it doesn't matter that you're needed in the healthcare system. It doesn't I, matter? I, I suffered like anybody else. <laughs> I worked from home. I, I played some things. Oh, my God. We, we bonded. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now share with us, please, if you can, as much as you will, about whom you contacted and what happened after that. So I did speak to some very high-level officials, both at PHAC, at Public Health Agency of Canada, and Ontario. And I, I have to credit the Ontario folks who gave me direct contacts to people at PHAC. And, you know, they were very open to hearing my suggestions, to be fair, but the time to implement them is going to be like by 2023, the way things seem to go. It's going to take too long. The first thing we talked about is the Arrive Can app is what should make the decision. So in other words, when you enter that you tested positive in Arrive Can, they ask you what date you tested positive, and then it tells you what do you have to do. Like once you get back, when does the clock start ticking? Does it start ticking from when you tested positive? Does it start ticking the day across the border? Does it start ticking the day after you test, after you get here? It's totally unfair, in my opinion, to make people suffer a longer isolation, uh, just waiting until they come back, and also adding even more days after they're back based on a federal guideline versus a local guideline. The second thing I said, you can put in what province people live in, and then have a calculator and say, okay, if you're from Ontario, you're only going to do this many days. And also, maybe for a farm Ontario, if you're positive after five days, you're allowed to fly home. 
and not make people go through the contortion. I'm lucky I, I came in by land because I would not have been able to fly back for at least uh, 10 days. And then the third thing we talked about is that the border guards are being given way too much medical power. Those people are trained to find drug dealers and smugglers, okay? They're not trained to make medical decisions about COVID. And if you look at the website for Public Health Agency of Canada, you need a science degree to figure out what you have to do. It's really, there's no flow chart and no automatic way to figure it out. You have to do a lot of reading through the line. So instead, let's have the Arrive Canada tell you what you have to do when you cross, and don't let the border guard make the decision. You just look at Arrive Canada, Arrive Canada, it's this many days, you're free on this day. Your experience has given me a headache. But I'm free. <laughs> I will tell you this. Border guards are good at finding a bottle of scotch in a motorcycle saddlebags. Personal experience. <laughs> I, I was allowed to shovel my driveway, though. That was a tremendous experience yeah. on my own property. It didn't violate anybody. Peter, thank you for joining us. Uh, Canadian athletes are being warned to take extra precautions against Chinese cyber surveillance including the danger of electronic devices being infected with spyware. Is this a legitimate concern? Um, Roy, I've read the reports from Canada about your sports minister briefing your Olympic athletes and warning them to take precautions against Chinese cyber surveillance, um, mainly because of the spy app that China is forcing all athletes to install. I've also seen reports that athletes have been advised to leave their real phones and laptops at home and only take burner phones to China. And then we've had this report about the chief of the Beijing Organizing Committee threatening athletes with punishment if they criticize China during the Olympics. All these things are unprecedented risks and threats and will make this Olympics an extremely repressed games. This is the worst environment that athletes have ever had to endure for an Olympics. Now, you know, I've been involved with China for 47 years as an educator, journalist, and then businessman. And today, for me, is the darkest hour. I attended the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics, and as I sat in my seat in the bird's nest, I shared the pride and emotion of all my Chinese friends, sensing the progress that China had made since I first arrived there in 1979. But since... 2008. China has reversed course away from joining the modern world. Xi Jinping has turned China into a dangerous place where a single word can land you in a dark jail or a labor camp. So this is no place for foreign athletes. And it also, it makes me think, you know, of the 1936 Holocaust games held by the Nazis in Berlin. But I think the atmosphere right now in Beijing is even worse than that because Xi Jinping has shown a a pathological hatred of foreigners and all things foreign, and no athlete can really feel safe and secure at these games. There's the Chinese spy app on their phones. It will make them very insecure and uncomfortable. The Chinese security gate technology on all the checkpoints is another data gatherer that, that goes way too far. The sheer idea that you have to carry a burner will make athletes very nervous. And the threat against athletes who speak their mind is terrifying. They even come after people chasing people abroad, Shanghai them, and schlep them back to China for speaking a bad word about the country. So people in China are not even free to discuss the government's draconian COVID measures. So athletes, beware. You know, that's what I say. There will be no foreign visitors, no supporters, 
family or friends to cheer you on and boost your morale. And there's this background of genocide in China today, a program of genocide against the Uyghurs. A number of foreign parliaments and governments, yesterday France joined in, have condemned these actions in Xinjiang as crimes against humanity and genocide. There are also mass jailings of activist lawyers, human rights people, citizen journalists, and Falun Gong believers. And thousands of foreigners are being held in Chinese jails, including Canadians, on very dubious charges, even though you managed to recover two of your citizens not long ago. Not one of the millions of prisoners in Chinese jails today has ever had a fair and transparent trial with due process, and that would be the case for anyone else who is detained in the future. So every athlete going to the Olympics will have the genocide and all these other human rights abuses on their conscience. In my view, they should preserve their dignity and their conscience and stay away. Uh, Peter, the, the sports minister, our federal sports minister, says the Canadian Olympic and Paralympic committees have a solid plan ready to protect athletes, including from espionage by the Chinese government. What you have just outlined for us, explained to us, detailed for us, suggests to me that it might not be possible to counter the plans and uh, the invective of the Chinese government. Am I close? Well, I think that's true for two reasons. Um, one is the absolute blanket draconian nature of China's surveillance and espionage and control measures. And the other is the fact that all these people have been trained as athletes. They've not been trained as spies or, or as counterintelligence, counterespionage agents. They are just athletes. They're, you know, they're only interested in athleticism. They're, they're, not, they're not trained for this. Are they going to be okay to go, do you feel? Will they be okay to go about the business of just participating as athletes in the Olympics and enjoying the experience? Or is this is going to be a cloud hanging over the whole thing? You know, athletes obviously want to perform, excel, and, and, and win. And, you know, they've got tremendous grit. But, you know, this is a tremendous cloud hang, hanging over the whole experience. And how can they be relaxed and happy, comfortable and secure, when they know that there is this horrible blanket hanging over them, um, you know, where, where a single word that they say to a fellow athlete or, or, or to a coach or something, uh, a single grumble or grunt might actually cause problems. I don't think it's going to be a happy game for them. Yeah, and the federal government says... For security reasons, operational planning to protect athletes cannot be disclosed. You don't want to go into an Olympics, uh, Olympic Games with that kind of attitude, with that kind of concern, federal government concern. Yeah, I mean, as a security specialist for a part of my career, um, you know, I can understand what you, you, you wouldn't disclose your, you know, your plans of how you're going to try and protect your team's um, against interference and against um, espionage and so forth, um, you wouldn't want to disclose those plans uh, in advance. But I can't imagine um, that they can do very much to prevent China from behaving in this way. You know, just imagine, you know, there will be bugs in the bedrooms, there'll be bugs in the dining rooms and so forth and so forth. Um, it will be very hard for coaches to have conversations with their athletes privately. 
you know, someone will be listening in and finding out their uh, their plans and their tactics and their strategy, never mind uh, what they might think politically about the environment they're in. So I, I don't know whether any plan is really going to be strong enough to prevent those things from happening. The best way for it not to happen is not to go. Uh, final question. Will, will the recent two Michaels situation between Canada and, uh, and, and China and the Ming, Meng Wanzhou situation, will that exacerbate the reality for Canadian athletes while they're in China? The experience of Michael Kofrich and Michael Spavel, um was a very cautionary tale for all Canadians, but for all foreigners visiting China too, um, a really cautionary tale. It was an absolutely horrendous, horrific ordeal. They suffered enormously in captivity, very mistreated, never saw justice. Um, fortunately, um, they were allowed to leave in the end as part of a deal. And I think that every Canadian attending these games, in whatever capacity, should be mindful of that experience. And I'm sure it will be right there in their minds because it's so recent. So last Saturday, we had a panel of three independent truck drivers on this program, unvaccinated. And they told us that if that mandate, Mr. Trudeau's mid-January mandate, vaccination mandate for cross-border truckers, went into effect, they would stop driving. They all three have. They all three have. And we just heard earlier this hour that up to 18,000 truckers are not going to be delivering. So... You can get angry at the truckers if you want, individually. But there were heroes just a couple of years ago for doing exactly what they said they were going to do now. And just remember that behind them in those trailers, are, as I said to my last guest, between 40, 50, and 60,000 pounds of goods that we need in this country. Chad is one of the uh, panel members who was on this program, now a former transport truck driver. Chad, you drove for more than 20 years and millions of miles, correct? Correct. So had the vaccine mandate not been enforced in the middle of January, would you be driving your truck now and possibly with a new truck on order? Um, yeah, I had talked to a dealership. I had owned trucks in the past, and I was in contact um, with the dealership back east that I had bought my previous two trucks from, um, looking to you know get back into the owner-operator side of things. And... Uh, so, yeah, I definitely still would have been doing it. It's always been my passion. I'm third-generation um, truck driver. Lots of other families worked in the industry in different uh, aspects as well. How many loads do you think you would have brought into Canada over the next three months if the mandate hadn't been ordered by Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Biden? Uh, typically, uh, when I ran both sides of the border, it was a load down and a load back each week. So... You know, four weeks, four weeks in a month, three months. So, you know, ballpark. Um, at different points in my career, I did different runs, and sometimes I'd cross the border five times a week. Yeah. With a full trailer. Yeah, of, loads, of, full, of, full both ways. Yeah, and food food supplies and all the other, the essentials of life for in the middle of the uh, Canadian winter. Yeah, over the years, I mean, I've hauled, you know, food, produce, uh, medical supplies, uh, fuel, chemicals, you know, pretty much you name it over the years, and I've hauled it. So, 
Okay. So a week after the fact, a week after the conversation, a week after you stopped driving because of the mandate, any regrets? Uh, no, uh, no regrets. Actually, uh, I was still plan on driving in Canada, and they're still hurting. We already were at a huge driver shortage, which a lot of people may not have even been aware of. Um, but as of yesterday, I got a job offer um, outside of a truck altogether. Um, so I will be stepping out of a truck entirely, um, and that's and that's totally a big reason. Um, all together is the mandates and the and the foolishness that's come along with it. You know, when it first started, there was, you know, you were a second-class citizen in a lot of ways, and, and that's come full circle. And, you know, and even if you drive across Canada, you can't go in and sit down at a restaurant, nothing like that. Whereas up until they wouldn't allow you across the border, as soon as you cross the border, you were a normal person. You could go in, sit down, eat. That was in the, United, in, the, in the U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S., but if I was to do it in Canada, I'm going to have to eat every meal in the truck. You're not allowed to go into a restaurant in B.C. and sit down if you're not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not going to live that lifestyle. I don't believe I should have to. When mm-hmm. I can come home every night after a 12-hour shift or every day and be normal, have a normal lifestyle. Do you, uh, do you find it... Um a little unusual, that it's okay to drive unvaccinated inside Canada's borders? You're just not allowed to cross the border? Do you find that's a, a little unusual? Oh, absolutely. The whole thing is unusual and bizarre, in my opinion. What about reaction you've had from uh, other truck drivers, vaccinated truck drivers? I mean, after I talked to the panel, uh, you and the other two drivers, I did receive some emails from uh, truckers and, and their, in one case, uh, spouse as well, saying, you know, they, were, they weren't happy with you. They weren't happy with the unvaccinated drivers. They were saying that you put them under additional stress and you should have been vaccinated for the good of everybody. So that was from some of the trucking community that I heard from. What are you hearing from truckers? Um, I have found that most people on an email like that, um, they're keyboard warriors. Um, they will never sit down and have an actual discussion with you. Um, so that's my biggest thing, I guess, in that regard. Uh, I've had people say, say things online, um, but as soon as you reply, then they cower, um, which seems to be a standard for that. As far as people um, face-to-face and after, like I said, 20-plus years in the industry myself, I know lots of people on both sides of the border and talk to them, and they get it. And unfortunately for them, and fortunately for Canadians, I will say, um, they're not living maybe in a place that has more opportunities, or they're older, and, and that's all they've known for 40 years, so they can't easily tr- uh, transition to something else. Okay. Um, so, but for a lot of them said they don't blame me. They would do the same thing if they had the opportunity to get out of a truck as well. Yeah, you had a decision to make. You made the decision that you felt was the correct one for you. And uh, I'm not hearing any support, at least from my guests. I haven't heard support. While there is support for, for a mandate from some of the guests, the, the, the timing of this one, middle of January, 
was hasn't received any support. Chad, thank you, and uh, good luck to you for the for the rest of your professional career. Whatever you do, you say you're probably going to start driving again at some point in this country. But thanks for spending the time with us. Well, thanks for the opportunity to chat. And as I said last week, uh, anytime you want to, you know, uh, an insider's view, I guess I may not be in a truck, but I'll still be in contact. And uh, if you have any real passionate emails, you can feel free to forward them to me and I'll be glad to to, uh, connect with those people, uh, with anyone that wants to really have an adult discussion and leave name calling and blame out of it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.